Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Walner, and I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, senior fellow at New America. In today's episode, we have a very special guest, someone who is just an all-around good guy, a prolific writer, a very one of the most thoughtful people I know, and someone who has helped me, even when we disagreed, to think through issues and think through policies and questions and think through things that I thought that I was certain of. And when I walk away from all of our conversations, I always walk away with a little more understanding and a little more confusion, but it's almost a hopeful confusion. So I hope that is received well, and that is for Jonathan Ross. He is a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. And when I say a prolific writer, I mean a prolific writer. He has written more things about more topics for more publications than I can begin to list in the time that we have here. But some of his most recent books and some of the books, like, for instance, The Constitution of Knowledge and Defense of Truth, which is an extraordinary book, I highly recommend it. And then also Political Realism, How Hacks, Machines, Big Money, and Backroom Deals can strengthen American democracy. And I was an early critic of this, uh, of his argument in this book, but I'm not sure that my position was accurate. We'll see. But Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. And today I want to just ask a question that I'm asking all the time, that I try to ask all the time. And that is, why can't Americans compromise? What is compromise and how do we get it? But why can't we do it? And what's preventing us from compromising? And I think your work in particular, both on the epistemological side and also on the more practical side and things like political realism and your policy work and your, and your writing for magazines like The Atlantic and publications like National Journal and others really gets to this question from lots of different angles. And so I think you're an excellent person to help walk us through and help us think through this question of why can't we compromise? Because right now, when I look out or at the country, if I read the newspaper, turn on the television, I see people saying we want more compromise. And the question then becomes, well, why doesn't that happen? And so let's answer that question today on this podcast once and for all. What do you say? <laughs> well, well, that'll be easy. We'll, we'll dismiss this question in mere second. I, I agree. Well, I agree. Let's compromise on what we're going to talk about. <laughs> so, so what, why can't they? Should we start with what is compromise and what compromise, how it's misunderstood, or we should or should we dive right into what why Americans? I, I think we need to define compromise because it seems very subjective to me. And I think you're the one who's written the book on the the epistemological kind of view of politics in this uh, in our system of government so maybe you get to make that decision well okay so this sort of standard schoolyard notion of compromise that most americans have is splitting the difference you have two people who disagree one wants taxes to go up one wants them to go down and you figure out a middle way in which each of them gets approximately half of what she wants. 
want. Or you have three people in the room, you divide the pie, or you give everyone something. And that idea of compromise involves a negotiation that's successful when everyone walks away unhappy. And I think that's kind of, you guys will correct me, but I think that's kind of become the street notion of compromise. You have to do it, but you're splitting the baby. We can talk about the Bible. That wasn't really a response at all. Yeah, I mean, because it turns out you, you know, it's, a, it's a test for seeing who, who cares enough about the, about the baby as the person who's willing to walk away completely, which is funny how that, that right. got exactly. misinterpreted. I think that, that's Larry Dean. It's not misinterpreted, but, but, but when you talk about compromises, people will scoff and say, well, you just want to split the baby. Or they'll say you want to split the difference. So I'm here to tell you that the popular concept of compromise is the splitting the difference and making people unhappy and, and possibly um, forsaking their, their moral priors is, is wrong. And the people who understood that were the founders and James Madison, who put compromise at the center of the Constitution. At its core, the Constitution is a compromise-forcing mechanism that ensures that no one faction or level of government or branch of government can really get much done without negotiating and compromising with the others. And the reason for that is that the founders understood that compromise isn't a zero-sum negotiation that's talking about how much you have to lose. It's a positive-sum negotiation. It's a creative, dynamic negotiation in which I walk in with one idea that you don't like, you walk in with an idea that I don't like, often what will happen is we'll reach out and create and imagine third ideas, other ideas, or we'll bring in additional parties, or we'll broaden the frame. If you think about two children, one wants to play chess, the other wants to play checkers. Maybe the way they work this out is to play neither. They invent a new board game, or they play cards. That's how compromise actually works. It is a dynamic and energetic force. And when it works, it has the added benefit that it acclimates human beings in a contentious society to go through this process of negotiation and come out the other side invested in the results. Everyone actually feels good at the end of a compromise for the most part because you've succeeded in something hard. So compromise is just, it's adverbial. It's, a, it's like, a, it's an activity. It's a practice that involves negotiation, that involves bargaining, that involves persuasion. Hey, hey ho hold on. Chess is clearly a superior game, guys. Nobody should be playing checkers when they should be, they could be playing chess. I mean, come on. Yeah, you're a, you right? strike me as a very chess guy. I mean, the bean sprouts on the windowsill. Now, Lee is, is not a good compromiser, apparently. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things that's happened, maybe not to Lee, but to a lot of people, is compromise has become a dirty word. Because it has this other meaning, which is compromise as in compromise your principle. And so people have come to think compromising in a negotiation, you're also compromising your principle. And that's disreputable. And this is interesting because it reminds me of something I think one of your favorite people wrote, and this is Derrida. And he writes, he says, there's always something about negotiation that's a little dirty, that gets one's hands dirty. Uh, and it seems more mediocre than your, your lofty kind of principles. He says, there is a negotiation. You have two incompatible imperatives. And so politics, in a way, is where we negotiate the non-negotiable. When you said earlier, there are no zero-sum issues per se. 
And I agree with that. And it's precisely on the issues we think are zero sum or that we think are so important. That's where we compromise. And, and the reason we do it, I think, is because it's the only way we have to make collective decisions in society. And the added benefit of it, outside of violence, and the added benefit of it is that we get a greater understanding of reality in the round when we're forced to step into the arena, make our arguments, let people respond to them, and then go from there. Politicians, I'm just running over you, James. Too bad for you. Politicians are, in principle, people whose job description is to build coalitions and then make compromises in order to make policy and in order to create a peaceful civil social environment. Unfortunately, there's another description of politicians, which has gained increased currency, and that's someone who comes in to fight, 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 and never give ground and shut down the government if that's what you've got to do. And unfortunately, that's what voters are increasingly responding to. So I... I get that compromise is hard. And I understand why, right? I mean, if compromise is where we step into the arena with our foes on issues that we believe are very deeply existential, for instance, if you think the planet's going extinct, you have to have an argument with someone who may not agree with you. And then the outcome of that argument, the, the give and the take of what happens throughout that argument and over its course is the compromise. It emerges out of that struggle. Or if you think a terrorist is hiding behind every doorway and lurking behind every bush and outside, like, and it's just waiting to spring out and get you, then you're going to be a little resistant to embrace a process whereby where you engage with people who don't agree with you. And instead you try to push them out of that process and not let them in and say that their arguments are illegitimate or somehow beyond the pale and a threat. And you ultimately, you're no longer having a debate and an argument about the thing on which you want to have action on. You're having a debate about whether people can participate, which is a very different debate. And I guess I want to keep this up in the clouds for a little bit longer because it seems like we've always had politicians who their incentives are like this. And I'm wondering what's different today? I mean, is it because we think about politics differently today than we did, say, 30 years ago or 100 years ago? I mean, why is it that John Quincy Adams and John C. Calhoun can spar or a Daniel Webster and a John Calhoun over things as fundamental as slavery, yet at the end of the day, also deeply respect one another and, and respect the intellect of the individual and and recognize that they disagree and then fight like hell to beat them, but then, but still be in that same arena. It seems like we don't even acknowledge that the arena where compromise happens is important. Yeah, well, of course, the, the thing with John C. Calhoun, I, the, that didn't end so well. So we probably should acknowledge that. And we should also acknowledge that there's still a fair amount of compromising going on on Capitol Hill. People are not as good at it up there anymore. Because they don't have the background, they don't have the training, there are more members of Congress who did not come up through a state legislature and who don't have constituencies in their districts who, who want to see deals get done and bacon brought home and bills passed. You don't hear as many members of Congress brag in, election, you know, in the election campaign about how much legislation they pushed through. So all of that's happened. But it is still the case that you have negotiations going on. And you have members of Congress, like Senator Kirsten Sinema, now an independent, but who is really good at figuring out where everyone in the room is and then coming up with creative ways to 
to walk out the door with, with the bargain. That's how we got the just over a year ago, the, the wonderful Respect for Marriage Act, which cemented into federal law the marriage of people like me and my husband, Michael, but also came up with some really good new religious liberty protections for people who disagree with that. It's a great piece of legislation. So stuff like this still goes on. Okay, so you ask, what happens? It is harder. Why is it harder? One reason is failure to teach civics, failure to teach what I just talked about. So compromise gets a bad name. And then there's this other thing, and we can't stay in the clouds for this, and you and Lee are going to have a lot to say about it. But we live in a world now where most congressional elections are not competitive in general elections, which means the people you're competing with are in primary challenge, primary races, and you're typically challenged by someone more extreme than you are, and voters tend to be quite extreme in primaries. And they tend to, in many cases, they'll punish compromise. They see it as a bad thing if you haven't done something like shut down the government to prove your point. And I think, be curious what, what you and Lee have to say, but it seems to me at the process level, that might be the biggest impediment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly part of it. I think the challenge is that the parties used to have these broad overlapping coalitions. So Democratic Party had liberals and conservatives. Republican Party had liberals and conservatives. Both parties had sort of rural and suburban and urban factions. They, they represent different parts of the country within the party. And what's really happened over the last 20, 30 years is that the spaces that the parties inhabit have just become so geographically separated and culturally separated that uh, there's been this reification of this us versus them dynamic in our politics. Uh, and this is, you know, essentially that everything has been flattened into the same mega conflict of Republicans versus Democrats. And when everything is flattened into one dimension, it becomes this one dimensional more versus less conflict. And, you know, there's a lot of areas where one, it doesn't, you know, there, there's not even a logical place where you would meet in the middle things are either or, but it prevents politics from being multidimensional and multi dimensional politics is where you get those creative compromises that you're you're talking about John is when you can add additional dimensions so if you talk about you know just standard pork barrel log rule that that you know distributive politics adds an extra dimension and creates a space where you can build you know you can get to a majority coalition where different people are supporting the bill for different reasons, but everybody votes yes. But now everything is, or so much of the stuff that really is, at least in the public-facing agenda, there is still some stuff that goes on behind the scenes uh, in Congress where nobody actually wants to get credit for the compromises because of reasons that you mentioned. But it's it's really the flattening of politics into this uh, single overarching us versus them dimension in which everything's this struggle to gain this elusive total power. And, and I think that has really distorted and destroyed our, our politics. Yeah, I think that gets close. I think that's part of it. But on one hand, compromise is the result. Of, it's a dynamic process that's driven by people who are engaged in negotiation, people who want to win, in essence. But that isn't inconsistent with the extremes, right? And if we can look to the 1960s, for instance, and we could see uh, on the left 
and the right, but especially the left, people who were winning elections. And if primaries, there's no reason why primaries can't be a competitive contest between two different visions within the party on policy issues. And we've seen this too in American history. But when you are driven to win, and then you go to DC and you say, go to Congress and you take up your office, say in the Senate after like the 1958 election, when we had 12 liberal Democrats come into the Senate and were out of step with their party, that they had also promised their constituents that they were going to act, that they were going to take action and try to win on things like civil rights reform. And so what did they do? They constantly pushed and pushed and pushed because they knew that if they didn't take action there, they would have nothing to show their constituents. It wasn't enough to just say, well, I couldn't, because of course they could. We can always act. And they chose to try to act. And over time, the result, the sum total of that acting was to create a debate and a, a conversation and an argument that ultimately changed people's minds and led to a compromise on, say, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. And a similar process theoretically is playing out with Dr. King and the civil rights movement outside of Congress as he's engaging in civil disobedience to prompt this same uh, conversation and acting in this same way. Today, it seems to me that we don't have people that are trying to win per se, right? I don't know where the, like, I don't see the, the impetus in, in part, it's related to elections, but I'm not sure that's the only reason. I'm, I mean, if we changed how we conduct elections, I'm not sure it's going to have any difference if the people we elect continue to think about politics in the way that they currently think about politics, which is not as an activity in which you participate, but as something that you try to control, a factory that you try to control so that you can build your widget that you already have in mind when you go into it. They're, a, they're, they're aspiring to rule, basically. Or perhaps even worse, as a morality play in which the other side is evil, our side is good, and that means the other side must be defeated and driven out of this civic sphere altogether. That, that mindset, unfortunately, is, is very common. We've heard it from people like Newt Gingrich now for years. He likens politics to, to war in as many words. Uh, lots of people do now. There's a a philosopher from the first part of the 20th century named Carl Schmitt, who actually became one of the lodestars of the Nazi movement. But he argued this. He claimed that, that politics is war. And therefore, ideas like compromise are bad. You, you, what you want to do is push to dominate, to win. And that's what the other side is going to do as well. And that, unfortunately, is a, a view that increasingly dominates our politics for the reasons we're discussing. I find it very curious, too, because I agree with that. In politics, is very similar to war in very legitimate ways, right? It's an uncertain activity. You have no idea how it's going to turn out. No one is in control of it. But it's not war. It is very different it's a from war. for war, of course. Right, because there's two ways to make collective decisions in a society. One is violence and one is politics. But I think that the question is, when parties disagree, this is what I find so remarkable. Because I, I see the dynamic that you're talking about on all sides, and not that everybody's doing it, but it is present, that mindset, that way of thinking about things. But when I, when I look at these parties, I don't see, they're at the same time, the other side's evil. We're the forces of good, but then they all acknowledge that they disagree about the actual things that they're doing. And so how do those things co coexist? Does that make sense? Not sure I totally, totally got the question. Which two things coexist? 
how can how can you be engaged in a morality play in a war for good to triumph over evil when you don't agree with the soldier next to you in the trenches? I mean, the parties are incredibly diverse on in, on policy issues. Americans do not agree. There is not one red America and one blue America, but there is this effective polarization. And, and what I find curious is how does this effective polarization, this morality play, if you will, how does it maintain itself when on the actual substance, they don't agree? Like, that's what I find really interesting. But that's the reason I I would argue that that's actually one of the reasons why the morality play has become so central is it's the one unifying force. Uh, But in the 60s, it wasn't possible. They had to do something. They couldn't turn around and not say we tried. Right, right. but but that was because the party coalitions were were overlapping and, and much more. Uh, multi-dimensional than they are now. There's there's conflict within the parties now, but it's on one dimension. It's not on multiple dimensions, and that's the big thing that's different. Jonathan, who's right? I think I think clearly I am. <laughs> you're you're both right. I mean, these factors are are always present. All of these factors, right? It's it's never going to be super easy to compromise, and people compromise because they have to, not because they they want to, and. A lot of issues like abortion will be harder than other issues like tax rates. And, and that's just the way it is. But if we're talking about the factors that have skewed the system away from compromise, I, I think we have to look. Well, I, I think that's happened. I think I don't know that many people would disagree that there are more obstacles to the mechanisms of compromise, that the works are more gummed up than they were when I started writing about Capitol Hill in, in the 1980s. And you had you know, very moderate Republicans like Ralph Regula from Ohio, who was on appropriations. And you had D's who worked with R's every day on stuff like military appropriations and farm bills. And they would just find ways to work things out. And um, usually the voters didn't know or didn't didn't particularly care how they got these things done, uh, but the appropriations bills mostly got done on time, or a lot of them did, and the farmers got enough of what they wanted to make them happy. And for a long time, we just kind of took this for granted. What, what we didn't understand was how much skill goes into the process of sorting and aggregating all of those interests, and then building the coalitions, building a compromise, and then going back home and selling that to your voters. We kind of forgot that that's all really, really hard. And a lot of people started to think, well, politicians should just go up there and do the right thing. And that's not how it works. I mean, they should start by doing something. I think, you know, you you try and you act and then people take note of it and you bring more people into the process, more people into the debate. And then that starts to move things one way or the other. I think this there is a tendency to say, I'm not going to do anything until I'm assured that I can win everything. It's never worked that way. And there is a skill there, which is going to get to another question I want to ask later on, which is like, are our lawmakers equipped with the skills to compromise? And if not, why not? Why are they different than the people who came before? But I want to, I want to just stay on this epistemological piece just for a a second, because I'm not sure, does compromise then, and according to how you see it, and, and Lee, as you see it as well, does that come from the, the middle? And I, and I kind of reject this whole left, right, middle thing to begin with, but let's, I'm going to go with it for now. Does it come from the middle, or is it something that the extremes enforce on the system? Lee, you want to start? 
I think it comes, I mean, Jonathan kind of got at this at the beginning that, that it comes out of an added dimension, right? You know, it's, it's an emergent property that comes out of a political alignment where nobody expects to dominate and, you know, and different people along different dimensions all are trying to figure out a way to solve a problem that is positive sum. I think the, uh, I mean, sometimes it can emerge out of the middle. Sometimes it can emerge out of people at the sort of extremes of their party who have credibility and say, you know, this is actually an important progressive bill. And sort of say this is actually has some important conservative elements. I mean, I think that was uh, sort of what was happening on some of the criminal justice reform work that made a little bit of progress, but not as much as it should have. That's exactly right. You've got to think about this as as not just one horizontal axis left to right with extremists who hate compromise and centrists who don't. It's an orthogonal axis. And it's on the one end of it, you've got people with a kind of problem solving mindset who understand that the system is designed to force you to deal with others to get stuff done and people who have a very oppositional mindset. And you can get that at different parts of the spectrum. You can take someone like Ronald Reagan, who is a rock rib conservative, but also an extremely good negotiator and compromiser, or Ted Kennedy, famously the lion of the left. Yet everyone in the Senate recognized he had great skill at forming coalitions and building compromises. The same would be true of of a Henry Waxman, for example, who is also someone way over on the left. Or Barry Goldwater, people don't give him credit. He was capable of doing some really creative stuff. He went to his grave saying that the Goldwater-Nichols military reform, which was a compromise, big one, important one, was, he said, the only thing he'd ever done that was worth a damn. It's a kind of legislative mindset. And and when you ask James to go to the, the point you raised on the way here, so why is there less of that? So there's political scientists. One is named Thompson, another is named Paul, forget their first name. Lee will know them. But they're increasingly concerned about a bad selection cycle. So we've got primary voters who tend, in many cases, to select out politicians who have a problem-solving mindset and tend to vote for the person who gives the most extreme no-compromise position. These are safe districts. So once those people get the nomination, they go to Congress. They don't know how to compromise even if they're very interested in doing it, which they're usually not. As more of these people come to Congress, Congress becomes more dysfunctional. As Congress becomes more dysfunctional, problem solvers who are there begin to filter out. It's a very, very unsatisfying job if all you get to do every day is vote on bills in order to make negative ads, but nothing actually happens. Terribly demoralizing. So those people start filtering out of the system or they don't run at all. So you get a self-selection spiral where the fewer people there are who know how to compromise, the fewer people there are who enter the system who can compromise. Yeah, uh, that's right. Daniel Thompson at UC Irvine and uh, Andrew. Andy Andrew Hall at Stanford. I knew you would know that. Yes, I, I, well, I actually recently wrote an essay on my Substack about this problem as I was thinking about the latest wave of retirements. And just to summarize their work briefly, Daniel Thompson's work, which is a book 
Opting Out of Congress, which you know is is a really great book because she did the work of actually talking to a lot of these members of Congress and people who might run in the moderates and just how hard and frustrating it was for them to operate in Congress. And her basic thesis is what she calls this party fit hypothesis, which is that people want to run for office if they have a party that they feel actually fits them. And a lot of moderates, particularly moderate Republicans, no longer feel that they are a fit for their party, so they just don't run. Although what's interesting about Danielle's work is that she shows that when moderates run in primaries, they actually do as well as people more more to the extremes. It's just that so few of them actually want to run in the first place because they don't see Congress as a place where they can feel at home. Andy Hall's book, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's called Who Wants to Run, looks more at the costs of running for Congress as, and, you know, his conclusion is basically, look, you got to spend a lot of time raising money. You got to put your family under tremendous strain. You know, if you're a qualified person, you probably have a pretty good paying job. Uh, and then you got to do this job where it's not that not that rewarding uh and unless you're you know a true believer what why do you want to put yourself through it but of course you're right Jonathan that that this becomes a sort of self-reinforcing dynamic dare dare I call it a doom loop in which the the fewer moderates there are in congress the more moderates say well what do i want to do you know do i want to go to congress and and be yelled at by people of my own party and feel like i can't do anything or you know do i want to just stay in my community and not have to travel constantly and, you know, do a decent paying job that I feel like is actually rewarding. And, you know, so it's or, like, yeah, or, or run for governor or secretary of state or an executive position <laughs> at a local level where, you yeah, feel like maybe I can make a difference. Yeah, exactly. And that creates a, a dynamic. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Jonathan, because I know you've written about this and thought about this a bit is there, there's also a change in the media environment, you know, which is just that there's so much coverage and surveillance and, you know, constant gotcha journalism. So it's just very hard uh, to find space to work out these deals in a way in which nothing is settled until everything is settled. I think that's, I think, I think that's also had an effect. And, and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, some of it is the sunshine laws, but I think it's really just a, a culture of, of adversarial gotcha journalism that, that sometimes mistakes accountability uh, of the process for accountability of the outcomes. Well, there's a debate that goes on especially recently, I think, I think James and I have talked about this, over notions that, that sunshine, sunlight is always the best disinfectant, and that the more transparency you have in a process, the better the results will be. We'll come to the media in a second, but I want to make this broader point first, because it's the context for the media. So Madison said toward the end of his life that the Constitution could never have have been written or agreed to if the negotiations had been open to the public for just the reason you cite. I mean, nothing is settled until everything is settled. There's so many, so many moving parts. And if you expose these conversations and negotiations to the public, it means, and this has been true for years, since long before Twitter, it means that the minute someone floats an idea that's a little bit risky for their side, but hoping to get something in exchange for that or thinking it might be creative and different. The interest groups, the lobbies, 
immediately go to war. And they can, this is before Twitter, they could unleash mail by the bagfuls overnight, if not sooner. They could launch the donations. They could launch the primary threats, the negative ads. All of that could happen within hours. Now, of course, it can happen within minutes, if not seconds. So there is a school of thought, which I'm sympathetic to, which says Congress actually worked better when there was more privacy. There were more voice votes. And not until the 70s was a lot of legislation done by roll call. So you always know how everyone's voting. And committee votes were mostly done not by roll call. So you didn't actually know who was voting which way in the committee. And that can be pretty handy if you're trying to figure out where the votes are for compromise. So there can be such a thing as too much transparency. And then you get a media environment where, of course, you know, you've got Ted Cruz tweeting from a Senate hearing and, you know, sort of evaluating his performance. I don't you guys probably remember what, what he did in that in that famous tweet. But so you've got these kind of popinjays that are strutting and tweeting and doing social media right there in real time. And it's it's almost trivially easy to organize opposition and to get the veto groups lined up. And that's a challenging environment. I don't actually attribute that to the news media per se, the media environment. I think that maybe has more to do with this larger change, which we're all going to have to live with, right? Of everyone being pretty much maximally exposed all the time. And I agree with a lot of that, but I think it not every issue is the same. And some issues need to have that bigger debate. Like civil rights isn't, you're not going to advance civil rights reform behind closed doors. It's just not going to work. And some issues need to have the outside game, if you will, because that's how you overcome the status quo. And by playing at a very effective outside game, you may not persuade your opponents inside, say, Congress that you're right, but what you can do is you can set up the world, structure that debate in such a way that they feel pressured to agree with you, even if they're not persuaded. And if we look at big moments in American history and policy history where things have changed and we've done really difficult things, I think it's been because of a, a process that helps to bring more people into that debate and that disrupts that balance of power between proponents and opponents of the status quo. And so in a sense, I think social media and other things will just make that easier. But I can also see how it also makes it harder and it complicates it. But I, I want to go back briefly. You mentioned earlier this idea of a legislative mindset. I think that's so true. That is so, it's such a fabulous way of thinking about this. If willingness to compromise is a legislative mindset and the people who have that mindset are leaving, that raises, it raised a couple questions for me. One, where did they acquire it? And then what are the consequences of their leaving? Because I think that it has to also be coupled with the willingness to act as well. A mindset that sees an effective and skillful way of acting. For instance, Romney, people would say he would be great at compromising. And when Romney announced his retirement in the Senate, I think people, a lot of people were wringing their hands and they were worried. This is yet another sign that things are going to get worse. But when I look at Romney's Senate career, and I'm, he's a very nice man, a very respectable, smart, successful guy. Uh, as a senator, I'm not sure what he did, and I'm not sure what impact he will have, what impact his leaving will have. So the implications of losing these folks are not, not good. In my opinion. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, hey, James, is that a trick question? 
So these girls are really hard. And one of the things that, that used to happen in the days of the political machines and the political establishments, which, as you both know, I'm, I'm in favor of, is people got promoted by demonstrating skill at lower levels of government. So if somebody walks in the door and says, hey, I'm running for governor, I'm running for Senate, someone in the party says, you know, why don't you run for county commissioner first and learn how that works? Or school board. And, and that's what would happen because you didn't really have the option of plausibly walking in and running for governor. And in the course of doing those jobs, the system finds out people in your party, the state legislators and the caucus and the voters find out, okay, so, so what are this person's qualities? Is this someone who's interested in, in building coalitions and figuring out how to get things done? Or is this a bomb player? And that gives you a way to evaluate them and it gives you a way to sort them and hopefully promote them. And today, the system, of course, is if you walk in with money and social media and a name, even if it's a name like, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, which is not an easy name, you can build a following online and you can circumvent a lot of the ordinary vetting processes. And there you are. So you're there in Congress and it's your first day and you're Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or, God forbid, George Santos. You don't know anything about putting a bill together and, and your people who voted for you often don't care that you don't know. So I think... You know, one challenge in this moment is that we've opened everything up so much that there's this sort of expectation that at every stage of the way we need public input and public consultation. But if I, I look at the history of opening things up and you know, go go back to the progressive era and the 1960s is every time reformers said, well, let's just open things up and bring in more people. Nobody really showed up because you know most people have other things to do, and the politically engaged are a, a sort of weird and distinct group of people, and in and you know, often they have extreme and what they would consider to be morally principled positions, and you know, rather than the legislative compromise oriented politicians that that you talk about. And I, I think there's been a little, there's certainly been a, a shift in my thinking, you know, o over the last several years, you know, when, when I first read your political realism piece, you know, I thought, oh, you know, this is, this is a little bit too much for me. I, I was more of a believer in transparency and participation. But you know, over the last several years, I, I've really come to appreciate just how important political parties are. And how important it is for there to be space for certain political leaders and you know who who have a long-term responsibility to make decisions and that all this public participation just makes it really hard for anybody to resolve anything and just kind of empowers those who have the biggest audience and you get the biggest audience by being the most obnoxious and confrontational. So I, I think we're sort of entering another era of political reform. Uh, there's certainly been a, a lot of interest in it. And you know, I think one of the, the big challenges of this era is how do we take that question seriously? 
and by that, by the question, I mean, how do we take seriously the question of how do you empower political leaders to do the things that only political leaders who have an investment in the long-term brand of their party and a collective responsibility for seeing things beyond just the next media cycle? How do you empower those people? Yeah, that, that's well said. Just for listeners' benefit, what Lee is referring to is I wrote a I wrote something uh, in I guess 2015 or so called Political Realism: How Hacks, Machines, Big Money, and Backroom Deals Can Strengthen American Democracy. And I made a case which is sounds very foreign to most voters today, but in fact has been integral to American political science for over a century. It's it's quite mainstream there, and it says that look. Organizing politics is really hard. It takes a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge. And there's only so much that individual voters can do or want to do. They're busy, they're busy having lives. And then in the last 50 years or so, since the reforms of the 1970s, really, well-intentioned people like the three of us in this conversation decided that the problem was we didn't have enough democracy or transparency. We didn't have enough public input. There was too much big money in the system. There is too much control by parties and party bosses. And we just set about dismantling all of those systems on the idea that more direct democracy would always be better. Well, it turned out that what political scientists going back to people like James Q. Wilson and then Patrick Moynihan and, and much earlier than that had been telling us, which is, look, if you demolish all of the institutions and institutional knowledge that have been built up over time to do the hard job of organizing politics. You know, stuff like vetting candidates, figure out, is this someone worth promoting? Or, for example, only parties have really long-term reputations. Politicians come and go. But if you want to think about the long-term, that's going to be a political party that's worried about that. And they said, if you demolish these parties, these institutions, these abilities to do backroom deals, um, the ability to trade favors, the ability to have stuff like earmarks, which is legislation that lets politicians bring pork home for their districts, turns out to be a good way to incentivize them to pass bills. If you get rid of all that, you're going to have chaos. And the result was, in fact, exactly as foretold. It was chaos. It's parties that now have institutionally little or no say. Well, hopefully this time we will learn the lessons that you got to give space for leaders and institutions to develop that long-term perspective and knowledge. And honestly, the best way to empower people to make good choices and to have collective power is to allow mediation in politics, that you need these intermediary institutions to help uh, citizens who don't have time to be constantly engaged to understand what's at stake and to make choices that reflect their values. And if you don't do that, you're just going to wind up having a democracy that's controlled by uh, the most morally on fire, no compromise people who thrive in that, in that environment. And the special interests that can, can manipulate the system. The founders organized our system as a hybrid, a partnership between the people, of course, but political professionals, people like James Madison. Most of the day that they work, they reserve for political professionals. And both of those aspects need to work. You need to have both. And 
I think that the last 50 years has been a process of, of largely forgetting that and thinking, well, pure democracy is where it's at. In the last few years, I think we're seeing in the world and certainly in the political science profession, a move back toward appreciating, hey, wait a minute. Uh, we also need to shore up the parts of the system that are less visible, but do a lot of the critical work of organizing politics. You know, there's a Morris Fiorina, who's a political scientist, has a phrase that there can be no moderate voters if there are no moderate candidates. And it's hard. And it's hard to have moderate candidates if there are no moderate parties. Right. Because parties are crucial for elevating candidates. Well, this has been a, a wonderful discussion. and We could probably talk for hours more. We got both Jacques Derrida and Carl Schmidt in. So that's a win. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm not sure if that's actually a win. <laughs> I, 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 uh, it's, 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 it's hard to know. Time will tell. We'll have to look back on a, on this a hundred years from now. Only then can we tell if it's a win or a loss. But no, this has been a, a great conversation, and we'll have to have you back. I really appreciate you being here because I've got so many questions. As you were talking, I was writing down as I always do, and I will walk away from this with so many questions. Getting into just the personality side of things and characters, and, and how do you interact with it, that level too, and the, the sociological level, the psychological level. There's so many different aspects of this. But I think that you have thought through in a very insightful way, in a very thoughtful way, the fundamental dynamics of this. If you're going to praise me like that, I'll come back anytime. But, but in truth, it's, I'm flattered and honored to uh, be able to have a conversation with two such innovative thinkers. Well, that's a great thing to end on, if you ask me. What do you think, Lee? Yeah, uh, let's, let's quit while we're ahead. Well, this has been another episode, an innovative episode of uh, Politics in Question. Thank you for listening. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a joint production between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Sarah Jacob. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. Theme music composed and performed by yours truly. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.